0: Welcome back to the podcast. I have one of my first inspirations, one of my first teachers, one of my first guides, one of the first people that even gave me the remotest possibility that I would eventually teach yoga.
1: Her name is Sean Corn. Welcome, Sean. Thank you so much. I didn't realize yeah. that. I'm, I'm I'm humbled. It's true. It's <laughs> true. Back in the day in the late
0: 90s when I would leverage my credit cards, travel to LA and take class at yoga works in Montana, you were one of the first teachers with whom I studied, you blew my mind, you were like cursing and having fun and being super irreverent, but also like, deeply, deeply reverent at the same time. That's funny, you, you, you blew my mind. You're an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher, you are a spiritual and social activist. You're one of the first teachers in the US to popularize vinyasa flow yoga. This started. You started in the '80s, correct?
1: I started practicing in the '80s, yeah. Okay. When did you start teaching? Actually, 1994 is when I and when I taught my first class. Dude, I caught you like four years
0: in. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. You're known for you're known for your um, impassioned teaching style. We all know this. Who studied with you? You're the co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World that started in 2007. And all told, since then you've helped to raise over. 3.5 million dollars via the global save a challenge by activating communities of yoga and wellness you are training yoga leaders note i didn't say teachers yoga leaders worldwide on how to activate real social change you're raising awareness about global humanitarian issues such as hiv and aids pandemic sex trafficking You also created a few other things, the yoga program at Children of the Night, which is a shelter that houses and educates adolescent prostitutes. God bless you. You were named in 2005 the National Yoga Ambassador for Youth AIDS. In 2013, you received the Global Green International Environmental Leadership Award and the Humanitarian Award by the Smithsonian Institute. Come on, girl. (laughs) Um, But your book, Revolution of the Soul, is what we're here to talk about. And it was released just last year, published by Sounds True. We share a publisher. And in light of the fact that Ramdas has just passed away, we're now talking just a few days or a week after he's passed. I know that he was a teacher for you. How do you see your role to start with as sort of a senior teacher and elder now in the yoga community?
1: I think that's a great question because it's something that I started pondering when I was around 48 years old. I would say I'm 53 now. So I'd say about five years ago, as I was approaching 50, I became really aware that organically my role within the communities of yoga was naturally going to begin to evolve. Like I'm no longer the ingenue. that. Ship sailed many, many years ago. (laughs) And yet I was, I I also didn't consider myself a senior teacher. I didn't, I hadn't taken that ownership yet. But I would, I had a couple of moments where, where some senior teachers, and I I put this in air quotes, you know, initiated me, like kind of passed the baton. And, and I, at the time, I was kind of like, huh, what? I'm, I'm too young for this. And then I started realizing, no. My senior teachers are retiring and with the loss of Matzi and Ram Das and, and many other teachers, they're yeah. dying. And there's a responsibility that someone like me has who has longevity in his community and has seen it evolve and grow to step into another level and take real ownership for it. So when I was 48, as I was approaching my 50th birthday, I started to do some really deep inner work and started to cultivate teachers and therapists around me older women to I, I guess usher me in yeah. to a new level of understanding whether it was about what was going to be happening to me physiologically psychologically emotionally what needed to die for something to be reborn what level of confidence did I have to have within myself in order to take ownership of this role and 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 be okay with with the authority that comes. With being an elder, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. And in that process of working with these older women, the reflection I kept getting back from them is they kept saying, Sean, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And at the time, I thought that that suggestion was more about credibility, meaning that, well, if you're going to be a, an, an elder in the community, you have to have a certain amount of credibility and, and having a book really allows for that, at least it you know from the, from the outside. So I had a lot of resistance to that because of my own limiting beliefs that I'm not smart enough, I'm not organized enough, I don't have enough content, I don't have enough lived experience, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. But I committed to going into that process. Now that I'm on the other side of it, and even during the, the, um, the, the writing of it, I realized that it was never about the completion of the book. It was never about the book itself. It was about the process that I was going to have to be forced to go in to confront these limiting beliefs and to have to really address some of the deeper shadows and also rebirth the youngest part of myself, the child part of myself that had been dormant for a really long time. And in the excavating of that child self, I also had to excavate Lot of my lot of my trauma, and it was through having to be present to that trauma in a different way that I really healed, confronted my limiting beliefs, um, reframed some of the narratives that I had, some of the stories that I hadn't been willing to go towards, because quite frankly, my role as a teacher and the identity that that role affords. Let's me bypass some of those stories, meaning that I can tell you how I feel without actually having to feel anything. I can assign a lot of depth and meaning to experiences without actually having to be present to it. And writing the book forced me to have to be present. And it opened up this incredible threshold of spiritual maturation that couldn't have happened unless I walked through the messiness of that process. And so in answer to your question, like I feel way more prepared now to step into that role as mentor, as leader with a lot more clarity and confidence. And it was because of the process of writing that book right. that I feel that I now have that, that willingness to do so in a way that prior I, I didn't have. It was a real initiation. Yeah.
0: That is a true story about writing in, in the first chapter of your book, you tell a story about your friend, Billy. Um, I'm on page 16 over the years. You say I've sat at the feet of saints and sages. I've traveled to meet beloved teachers and guides, but never have I awakened to the sweet and simple truth of seeing the God within the way that I did that night through the eyes of an angel, my angel in a place called heaven. Hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, Heaven was the name of the club, by the way, that you were in. I remember Mm -hmm. it. Would you like to share that story? Because I think it actually tells a lot about you and who you've become.
1: Well, that that story is – it was really the – it's how I, in some ways, how I launched the book. Because I've been telling the story of Billy for many, many years because of the deep influence that that teaching had on the way in which I – Show up in the world that, like you had said earlier, you know, I straddled that that line between irreverence and being very reverent, very seeing the holy and the sacred in all things, and also kind of being in on the joke at the same time. Right. And I had a real resistance to religion. It wasn't the way I, I wasn't raised with religion. I had a lot of fear and superstition around it. I didn't understand the difference between religion and spirituality. And when I moved to New York from Jersey, um, right out, right after high school. So I was still 17. I worked in nightclubs because I didn't have an education and I had, um, I I was open and I also parted really, really hard at that time. So working in nightclubs was a way to get a lot of my needs met. I I got the free drugs and alcohol. And I also got to experience, um, really the shadow side of life and, and dance at that edge. So I worked in an all-male gay sex club. It was in the rectory of Limelight, which was a very famous um, nightclub in a church. Right. And Heaven was a private club. I worked there behind the bar. And Billy was a man who came into the bar most nights. And uh, African-American man, um, gay. Billy, though, was... Uh, he, he had grown up in Ohio and had been ostracized from his church and his community when he came out. And um, came to live in New York um, just to be able to be in his truth. There was a lot of melancholy about Billy, but he was also open and joyous and loved loved me Um, and would give me a very hard time about my drug use. We became very close friends. And what I write about in the book is a singular event that happened that really shifted the trajectory of my life, although I couldn't have known it at that time. And that's why I talk about angels showing up in in very peculiar ways to help to launch you into your destiny. Mm -hmm. And Billy was that for me. And what had happened is he came into the club. I hadn't seen him in a while. He looked very frail. And when I went to hug him, I noticed open sores on his neck and shoulders. And when I asked what it was, he told me they were symptomatic of his disease, which, of course, back in the late 80s... it was AIDS. And my reaction to hearing that word and to being such close proximity to the symptoms of it, I recoiled and felt deeply ashamed for my reaction and apologized. And so Billy asked me if I wanted to understand more about his disease. And of course I did. And he explained it to me. And I asked him at the end of the uh, the end of the conversation, what was going to happen? Now, of course, you know, at that time there was no cure. If there's no cure today. And I knew the answer, but I guess I was hoping for a, a different you know, response. And he mm-hmm. looked me square in the eye and told me he was dying. And I asked him if he was afraid. And he told me no, because of his faith in God. And when he said my faith in God, I recoiled again. But this time, Billy started laughing. And he said, Sean, don't you believe in God? And I told him I didn't. And I explained why. and And he listened. And he had so much compassion and he and said, I get it. That's how it was for me too. And then he said, Sean, would you like to see God right now? And I remember looking around the club and I was like, now here? You know, there's men dancing naked, they're making out. It's like the last place that you would think that God would inhabit. And so I said, yeah, you show me God here. And so Billy started to point to different different people in the club, Danny, the wonder pony, you know, some white guy that used to come into the club and with a saddle on his back and, and, and chaps and he was (laughs) naked. And, and, you know, for a dollar you can climb on his back and hit him with a switch. And Billy points to this person and says, God's right there. Mm-hmm. And then he points to Violet, who was known then, we would have referred to Violet then as a cross dresser, right. but now we understand Violet to be transgender. And mm. um, Billy pointed to Violet and said, God's right there. And then pointed to two guys that were like best dressed, they look like Wall Street dudes, you know, and arguing over a pitcher of beer. Right. And uh, Billy said, God's right there. And then Billy took his hand and he put it on my heart and, or put it on his heart, he took his hand, put it on my heart, mine on his, and then said, Sean, God's right here. He said, I'm going to tell you something. and I hope you remember this the whole of your life. He said, ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love, you'll never regret it. And those two sentences shifted something in me because he continued then to say, he said, all of this, it's just a story. It's not who we are. He said, Danny the Wonder Pony, Violet, me, you, AIDS, all of it. It's an aspect of our journey, but it's not who we are. Who we are are love and light and infinite grace, and we are all here to awaken to the power of love within. Everything else is just lessons to learn and karma to burn and opportunities for this spiritual maturation. None of it's bad because he wanted me to understand that all of us in time, in a timeline that's between each soul and the God of their own understanding, is what's going to lead to understanding love. So all moments are holy, all beings are sacred. Yeah. And and obviously I'm paraphrasing what he said, but in essence, he was helping me to understand that God is not just in the light, it's in the grit, it's in the grotesque, it's in the heartbreak, it's in the loss. And only when we stand in judgment to that which we don't understand mm-hmm. is when we're when we're showing evidence of where God is missing within our own perception. And that shifted something huge for me because it helped me to understand that it's all a story and that our work is to not put too much value in the narrative itself, but to look at the individual soul with deep empathy and appreciation. Because as Ram Dass says, we're all just walking each other home.
0: I want to skip around a little bit in the book, even though my notes are chronological, but I, I want to skip around. Chapter seven, just to like open and close this book, you speak about your experiences with Batabi Joyce. You talked with Shannon Algio on his podcast too. And you mentioned the role of therapy in helping you learn all the coping mechanisms that you have now for dealing with potentially re-traumatizing situations. And, you talked about like i haven't i hadn't read any uh, personal recountings but on page 121 you talk about the particular moment where you were able to finally say to patabi joys stop like don't touch me like that that is not okay mm-hmm. for me so many women never had that never took that chance that like, we all had that chance but no so many didn't take that chance um Do you feel like talking about that at all? Because I feel like that's something that people should hear and know.
1: Yeah, of of course. Um, Writing that chapter was very, very hard for me. Um, I've been talking about Batabi, you know, amongst my circle for years and years. And if someone cared to ask, it was definitely, it was like, yeah, absolutely, that happened and that's the truth. But to write it in a book and to have to go into the details of it felt very intimidating. And I skirted around, uh, he, here I am writing a whole chapter about you know finding the God within and also, or finding the guru within, and also talking about the hypocrisy of the guru or the danger of the guru-disciple relationship and why. And yet I'm avoiding the story itself. And there was a moment where I wrote in the chapter about how this kind of behavior exists today, this, this imbalance of power. And unless we speak out about it, then we are complicit to that particular danger and, um, and a part of the problem. And all of a sudden I realized like, son of a bitch, like I'm complicit because I refuse to be specific. Hmm. And I remember all the women coming forward over the last few years, um, women that I don't necessarily know, but they were writing blogs and getting thrashed um, online and mostly by other men. And I would read what they were saying and I'd, I'd think to myself, they're not lying. I was there. That's exactly what went down. Yeah. But these women lost their jobs. These women were vilified. These women were ostracized from their communities. Wow. They were called liars. They were told that the, that the world is an illusion and you proche- project onto the world that which is within yourself. And I realized that as I processed my resistance to writing the story, I knew it was because I didn't want to hurt or it wasn't so much hurting. I didn't want to be ostracized by some of the mentors in my life who I love. Who are very protective of the legacy of Patabi Joyce. And but what I also knew is I'm not gonna lose my job. In the big picture, it's not gonna impact my reputation negatively. I might lose a couple of friends. Even if it does, who um, cares? It's the truth. Right. But I had to process that. Right. Like I had to really let myself like really ask myself, what's my concern here? And feel into that. And I thought I have a responsibility. This is really, you know, again, first step in modeling mentorship and leadership. I have a responsibility because of my positionality within the yoga community, above and beyond anything else, that this is the privilege, uh, because of the privilege that I've been given, that there also is a responsibility with that. And I have to do it so that some young teacher never has to do that again, so that they never have to be put in a position to be called a liar. Like, I'd rather take that on the chin because my positionality can afford that hit. Uh, someone else might not be able to afford losing their job. So, how dare I not mm-hmm. take the go You know, so I lose a relationship, but how dare I? Like, it, the, the injustice of that really weighed on my body. Right. And so I was like, oh, I am writing this and I'm going to be specific. But it was not easy. I had to balance that that within my own the, the trauma within myself of having to go into it to tell the story from present time, and you know I wrote it and I just you know went into it because the gift in that story also the gift even in my relationship with Patabi Joyce and going back to Billy that they're all angels. It doesn't contone his behavior, but I've dealt with childhood sexual trauma and sexual trauma my whole life. I've been in therapy since I was 18 years old. I suffered with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder as a result of my childhood sexual trauma. And one of the survival mechanisms that I had and have is dissociation, my ability to check out um, and not feel anything at all. And one of the things that would happen to me when I would go up against anything that was overwhelming was that I would freeze. And be physically incapable of taking the next action, either physically or verbally. And so I always knew that if I was to be assaulted, it would be impossible for me to run, to fight back, to even yell, because the evidence has shown that all those parts of my physiology go into freeze mode, and I can't even utter a sound. Like my throat physically shuts down. Yeah. So what was very empowering in the Patabi story is that when I first saw what was happening, I remember, and that was day number one, I remember looking around and being like, is everyone else seeing this too? Because this doesn't seem right. And But everyone was telling me that what I was seeing wasn't actually in reality. It was the guru doesn't have that relationship with the human body, blah, blah, blah. Or I was projecting something, misunderstanding something. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. Because I'd already been in therapy at this point for 12 years. So I had done an enormous amount of work on learning how to speak up and out and learning how to trust that what I was seeing and experiencing was actually real. And so I was like, I'm choosing to be here because I want to be part of this experience, but this is happening. So the first time it happened to me, I went into that dissociation. Um, meaning that I didn't, I said out loud that the, um, uh, I remember the first time it happened. I didn't write about this in the book. Um, but the first thing that I said spontaneously was, uh, and it was sarcastic, but it was, oh, oh, uh, lovely. Um, just like that. so it was sarcasm, which was, you know, kind of my passive aggressive way of like acknowledging that this thing just happened. Totally. But it was also shocking to me that something actually physically came out of my mouth that acknowledged it at all. And Mm -hmm. the next couple of times that it happened, I didn't say anything, but I was enraged because I knew this is not okay. It was that moment, though, when he was on my back and I can feel his penis up against my sacrum and... (laughs) I I could feel like this is happening and I'm trapped under the weight where it happened so spontaneously and my hand reached out and I smacked him and yelled to stop. And, and then there was dialogue that went back and forth between him and Shira and Patabi climbed off on, not in English, not in English. No. And Patabi never touched me again, but literally it was a punishment Mm. It was an absolute punishment. He did not touch me. He would not look at me, nothing until I left. Sherat, on the other hand, went above and beyond to be a gentleman and to be focused and professional. And I don't know what all of that, what his role, he was only 19 or so at that time, but.
0: But his soul knew what was going on. It's clear from the tone that he used.
1: Yeah. Well. That he was reprimanding him. When recently uh, Sherat wrote a. um, just a few weeks before my book came out, uh, Sherat wrote a um, piece on, online on Instagram, an apology wow. and uh, acknowledging what was happening. And it was such a relief because I knew that when my book came out, after what I wrote, that I was going to take a big hit, especially within the Ashtanga community. And I wasn't looking forward to it, but I was prepared. And I had already, at that point, taken some hits from some of my ment- from of my senior teachers who had read the book prior, who had read the the chapter prior, and were trying to desperately get me to change to take that out. And it was a really uncomfortable time for me because everything that I thought was going to happen was starting to happen. So when Shara came forward and acknowledged what his grandfather did and made a public apology. And it wasn't perfect, I mean, it wasn't. But it, it was, for someone, not as, a, not as a senior teacher, but someone who was actually victimized by Patabi, I immediately responded with just, thank you. I didn't explain, I didn't go into it, I didn't feel the need to have to get into the whole story with the public. Um, I figured, you know, they'll find out soon enough. But I just responded, thank you. Because it's all I needed to hear was an acknowledgement that this happened and that once Sherat acknowledged it, no one else, all the senior teachers who were, you know, saying that, you know, I was a liar, they they there was no place for them to go except to take ownership for their own complicity and their own denial. And so it was important for me. I hope it was important for it took some it took an exhale out for some of the other women who have had this impact had this experience and had felt vilified. Um, I am, I'm proud of the chapter, even though it was, it was re-traumatizing to have to share so much about my own, not so much about Patabi, but the intricacies of the dissociation and the journey that someone who experiences sexual trauma goes through in order to come through the other side, that it's not like, well, why don't you just fight them back? Why don't you just say something? Trauma runs deep in the body and there's some real physiological impacts that you have to work through before you can break through. Yeah.
0: And you spend all that time in therapy. You, uh, I'm going to name him Norman. So yeah. sweet. All the ways in which you reference mm-hmm. him in the book are so nice. I think it will help a lot of women and men who resist having a therapist that's still happening and, um, and see yeah. what, a, what a benefit it is to have somebody with whom to balance ideas and assumptions and grievances and
1: perceptions and, and perhaps be introduced to another way to look. You know, I always say to people, like if you have the resources, you can have, and if you can afford it or if you can have a life coach or get into the program, something. But I always tell them that if someone wants to learn to get their he- leg behind their head, they're going to come to someone like me or you, someone who has training, someone who has experience, someone who understands anatomy, and be able to look at their bodies and explain, well, here's, here are the steps you have to take physically, emotionally, psychologically in order to prepare your body to be able to move in that particular direction. Now, there's not going to be a lot of shame around it. They're going to be like, oh, I see. I've got to do ABC to get my hip open enough safely to be able to approach this. And I would say, yes, here are the exercises, here are the practices. And to me, it's the same with therapy. If you leave me to my own devices, my perception is going to be influenced by my trauma, by my fear, my rage, my shame, my guilt, my grief, and the limitations I have in my understanding of a broader worldview. So I'm going to hire someone who has that experience and that knowledge, who's going to be able to hear my perception and mindfully guide me into a, just a broader understanding in a timeline that my nervous system can handle. And I think that if like, as I share in the book, Norman led me psychologically to a certain degree, to a certain place. And then my next therapist, next therapist, next therapist, you know, they, all of them just added to it as my nervous system titrated to the information. And meaning acclimated. And so, therapy, yoga was not enough alone. Yoga actually became one more tool for my dissociation because in yoga, I learned detachment. Big feeling comes up, detach, breathe, and everything changes. But it was in therapy that said, no, what is that feeling? What is the rage, the shame? Give it a voice, give it a shape. Um, don't get spiritual, get human. Mm. And because yoga taught me how to bypass where therapy taught me how to be present without shame. And, and then in time I learned how to integrate the two. Right.
0: It's interesting. You taught at Omega going back to one of the earlier chapters, you taught at Omega four days after your father passed away. Oh yeah. And I remember going to Australia and teaching like a week or two after my mom passed away and not changing the plan, taking the kid and just going. (laughs) And you talk about, this is like one of the most touching moments of the book for me, you talk about this porousness that you felt that when you were teaching so close to his death, you could almost feel more acutely and precisely everything that the students were feeling. And I know that to be the hugest gift ever when somebody passes close to you. Can you talk a little bit about that time? And yeah. um, for my listener who's just lost a parent or just lost somebody close to them, what's the beauty in that time? And what should we look for?
1: Oh boy. Um, actually, the moment you're talking about wasn't in the book. So that must have been a conversation between you and I personally that like landed, or you heard me talk about it elsewhere. I do share about my father, the very last chapter, which is a is an ass kicker of a chapter, um, hard to write, but so important. And it frames so much of the book. But the moment that you're referring to was I I really thought that as you know you know I I thought with all the skills that I have that I would be able just to get on with it. You know, my dad was a yoga teacher. He really helped me to walk through his death and dying. Um, But when he died, so much got excavated. It was such a deep initiation. When I went to Omega, I remember I got out of the car with my mom And a student walked by and just said, hey, Sean. And I turned and like big smile, just kind of lit up. Hey, how are you? And I turned back to my mom and my eyes filled with tears and my hands started to shake because I realized there was no, normally when I teach, there's a screen door between me and everyone else. There's just this natural barrier that it's just an energetic boundary. It didn't exist. I felt everything. I felt their humanity. I felt their family. I felt their loss. I felt their grief. I felt their pain and suffering or their future pain and suffering. And it went right through my body. And I was like, oh my God, mom, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to stand in the presence of another soul while I'm in my grief. I, I It was all so raw and new. And I'm emotionally even thinking about it because it was so, I had to pull up. The strongest, I had to suppress the most vulnerable part of myself and pull up the, I don't even want to use the word strong because quite frankly, I don't think it was that. It was just resiliency um, to be able to get through this weekend. But the most powerful thing happened because everyone knew my dad died and everyone was being really great and checking in and everything. But you know, it was like lights were on, but no one was home. Because I knew I was going to fucking crack. And the last class, it was a women's only class. And there were hundreds of people in that room. And I hadn't publicly mentioned anything about my dad. And it was the very last prayer. (sighs) And I don't know where it came from within me. But I was offering a prayer. And then I said, if you would... I would love to offer, and I'd love to send out an om to my, and I couldn't say the word. And like, I remember my mouth tightening and starting to quiver, and I couldn't say the word father. And, but every again, everyone knew what was happening, what I had been holding. And all of a sudden, this one woman in the room, just started to ohm of course and everybody started to ohm and i sat on the stage and just wept and let myself be carried by the community to do for me what i couldn't do which was surrender and let myself feel the overwhelm of grief and also to let them witness the humanity of it. Before my dad died, he wanted me to teach this workshop called Yoga for a Broken Heart. And he wanted me to do it within three months of his death. And I told him, I was like, dad, I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to talk about any of this. I have to process it. And my dad said, you have to, you have to normalize death. It's a part of the living. And you are fortunate enough to do it in the right order of things, Mm -hmm. you know, meaning that even though it's hard, it's still the right order, you know, they die before we die we we shouldn't have to bury our children which many people sadly do and i remember that moment of being lifted by the community and being witnessed in my grief and allowing my vulnerability and my sh- my shame as if i should be better because i'm a teacher i should be beyond this i shouldn't have to you know i should be like yeah it's okay you know we walk each other home and that's mm-hmm. what this is that wasn't the truth and by them carrying me, it empowered me to be able to, within those three months, teach yoga for a broken heart. And even though it was really hard, every time I talked about death and dying and witnessed people in their grief and let them witness witness me and mine, it accelerated my healing process. Right. And I know it accelerated others as well. And I, I'm not going to suggest it was easier. It just... Was always a relief when it was over, just to have the space to speak about the incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know I remember, of course, when your mom passed. Also, although I remember saying to my dad that I was so grateful that he was teaching me about death and dying yes. first before my mom, yeah. because I not that I loved my father any less, but there was definitely a different love. That I experienced between my father and my mother. And my father helped me to prepare for the inevitability of my mom's, which if it was reversed, I don't know if we I'd even be having this conversation with you.
0: It was not an easy uh, time. No, that was not. But we only had, we had these 24 hours and I got to say and feel and do a lot of the things that anyone would have ever wanted to do or say. Yeah. And I'd read all the books and I, you know, I'm secretly a little bit obsessed with death. And one of my main teachers is Rod Stryker, and he's always teaching so that we can have a better death, not necessarily a better life. And, you know, all of that fed into it. Uh, I spoke to Douglas Brooks that day, got a prayer, you know, all the things that I needed to do, but it was still crazy.
1: Yep. And you said the 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 perfect thing there. If you have that kind of relationship with your with your family, Say all the things. All the things. I didn't want to, because at first, because it felt like if I went to my dad and started saying all the things, it would mean acknowledging that he was going to die. It would mean saying goodbye. And I wanted to, I didn't want to be that one to like put the nail in his coffin, so to speak. And I knew when it was, it was happening, when we were moving, there was no, the cancer, it was too late. And I knew I had to be the one to go to him and say, I'm, I'm so sad and I'm so scared. And I'm going to miss you so much. And here's all that I love. Oh my God. That walk from my bedroom to his was just the longest walk. Known, it felt like the longest walk known to man and dropping to my knees and putting my head on his chest and letting him be my dad, letting him be my daddy, like letting him hold me and whisper in my ear and letting me sob like I was eight years old and letting, letting him carry me and not being that, you know, the strong woman that I am, um, or that I, the identity of that surrendering it and letting him hold space for his daughter was one of the best gifts that I gave him and myself. So anyone who's listening first, anyone who's listening, who's walking through this, I, I, I know I can speak for you with, with, for you with this is, Our hearts are with you on this. It is hard and it is messy and it is heartbreaking. And your heart will crack open and you will experience a whole other level of humility and love and grace that only death can open us to in the same way I imagine birth opens us to. And the grief process that first year sucked Mm -hmm. and then it gets different and i feel my father in my physical body yeah. in a way that i never did when he was alive and i experience things in life that in the past i wouldn't have enjoyed or been interested in but i know my dad would and as long as i'm alive and breathe i know my father is still experiencing this world and so i my dad lives as long as i as i live and hold the world with curiosity it's like daddy this one's for you and i know that he's enjoying himself through me right. and so i'm i my heart is with anyone listening right now who's just feeling into this because it's a rough ride yeah. but we heal and we love and we forgive and we remember well and they are truly with us always Thank you for that. Oh, you just fucked me up with this conversation. Oh, dude, I've
0: cried three times already. I'm (laughs) I'm playing it super cool, but I have tears streaming down my face right now. (laughs) Last thing, page 210 is where I'm at right now in your book. You say, quote, do your inner work. You may need to dismantle the systems within first, balancing those fundamental forces yoga calls the gunas over and over again, that keep you from truly committing to justice. Now, I've read mindful of race, I've interviewed Ruth King, I'm obsessed with her. We had a beautiful conversation about mobilizing collective consciousness around racial conditioning and I had a big awakening and you know, my kid had a big awakening. She uses mindfulness to reprogram our nervous system, deconstruct things. Your mission has always impressed me in this regard because somehow you get all of this justice work into the asana practice. And I would love for you to just talk a little bit for the teacher who's listening and the student who's listening about
1: how that came about, what it is for you now, how it's evolved perhaps. I think that's the evolution that I experienced in yoga. And then th- this, this interesting hypocrisy, this moment of like hearing we're all one, we're all one. And, and knowing that on an energetic level, of course, that's true. But looking around the world and thinking like, really? Because I seem to have a lot more access to resources and safety and peace than most people in this world. And I would, you know, so much of the context of yoga is about the, the eradication of suffering. And yet I was also simultaneously aware of my participation in that suffering. And I would hear teachers say things like, we can't be free unless we're all free and that our liberation is bound. And it was so clear to me, it's about action. These are just words. Without action, these are words. And the system is designed to keep people oppressed. And I am a part of that system because I benefit from those systems that support people like me who are in the dominant culture. And I thought, oh my God. Where is it then within the context of yoga that talks to this? And it certainly wasn't within the... It's everywhere within in the context of yoga. It's everywhere. It's really looking at... It's looking at our pride. It's looking at our ego. It's looking at all aspects of the self. Everywhere in yoga is asking us to hold the mirror up and to look at and self-study the places within ourselves that are dominated by the ego, that are creating suffering in others. And so if we want to dismantle the world that exists, that is creating oppression, then the first course of action requires us to dismantle the systems within ourselves that participate in that division of inequity. And this became a mission of mine. I, I, I would say I became... The practice shifted from the me to the we back in the around 1997 when I work, went to work for Children of the Night because I didn't go there with any sense of altruism. It wasn't about that at first. Now I look now and I see that God led me there because it was the next level of my evolution. But at the time, it was only because I was starting to make money as a yoga teacher. I believe in a, in in energy and that abundance is an energy. And then if if you if you stop the flow of abundance. Like, if you're not giving back, then you stop that flow. It becomes caustic. And I didn't want to stop the flow of abundance. So, my interest in giving back, I put this in air quotes, was really cavalier. It was really about my own self interest. And so, I'm like, well, I should probably give something away then. But yet, yeah, destiny led me to an environment that first held the mirror up where I got so triggered and so uncomfortable and judgmental and reactive when i met what i would find out later was my disowned self the part of me that i thought i had healed was standing right in front of me and i didn't like it and i wanted to run from it and yet by running from it then once again i am a part of creating this suffering because it was scaring what it was scaring me what i was going to have to face within myself and Then it just continued to evolve this sense of the, me at first, I wanted, it was helping. I'll help people. And then realizing that actually without unpacking that, my helping is the perpetuation of white supremacy. And it was like, ah, son of a bitch. So now I have to unpack that. And now I have to look at power and privilege. And now I have to look at my own internalized racism. And now I have to look at, well, if I believe no separation of the mind body, then I'm holding on to the prejudice and the stereotyping and the racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, of my culture, of my religion, of my grandmother and ancestry. And that there's, that that lives within me too. And that's yoga teaches me then to going back to this idea of normalizing it. We can't change it unless we can see it. So I need to normalize it and be instead of saying, well, I'm not racist, say, of course I'm racist. There's no way that I can't be if I believe in the mind-body connection. So once I say, of course I am, then it allows me, in the moment when I get triggered and the the, the internalized bias and prejudice arises, I do what yoga teaches us to do. I pause, I breathe. I get very present and I make a different choice. So rather than be reactive, I'm responsive and then therefore responsible. But it comes to me as a sensation. You know, I'll feel it in my body first and be like, Sean, do not do or say a thing because you're about to create harm. Take a moment and and be like, oh, hey, grandma, your your bias is up right now. All right. What's the truth? Let's get underneath that. Mm -hmm. But don't pretend it's not happening. And I really wanted to get in the book. I was very committed to, instead of telling people like, you're a racist, you're, you know, your white supremacy is showing. I wanted to model it and be like, or rather embody it and say like, here's what it looks like. And here's how it shows up every single day. And here's how it shows up in my life, even as an experienced yoga teacher. Because by the end of the book, it's not 20 years ago, it's five years ago. And so it was important to say, like, this is going to continue to happen. The rate in which, though, we create harm gets less and less when you have good tools that you can access in the moment of the overwhelm. And so that's what those uh, chapters are all about. And that's what the evolution of my own practice has led me towards. It's not fun, believe me. But I prayed, and I do this in the very beginning of the book. I open my book up with a prayer. And I want people to read that prayer because... That prayer is opens that portal that if you're praying for transformation and clarity, that's what you're going to get. And it often shows up in a really messy way, but it's no less a response to the prayer itself. So that's what I asked for is I want to be in service to this world in the most integrated and whole and holy way I can. And what it looks like is accountability. And that to me is what true allyship looks like, um, is taking accountability for the ways in which we create suffering and then change it. You're the one who does that.
0: You're the. For me, when I saw you starting to do that, it was just the beginning. But I could feel you and you moved me to weave messages into the asana in a way that nobody else had. And I really don't feel that anyone else does yet. I feel like you, you have a thing all... Your own and the presence that you're able to
1: cultivate in a room full of hundreds of people is priceless. Thank you for that. Thank you. You know, that's my commitment and it will continue to be. And it's what I want to that in my mentorship and in my training of young yoga leaders Mm -hmm. is to help give them the framework to be able to do that in an organized way, to be as mindful of their languaging as possible, and to instead of uh, lecturing to the students, to really speak from the heart what it means to be in co-conspiracy co-cons- with the community in order to create social change and justice in the name of peace. And it's not easy. It is. Re- it can be really, really scary, but there are skills and tools that can help um, the young teacher feel more confident in doing so. And also looking internally on how to process that fear so that it's not the thing that drives the message. But it, I'm not going to say it's easy. And I've had mentorship and training that has, it, I did not do this just whimsically. I looked for guidance when I made that commitment because, like you, you know, we're yoga, we're yoga students above anything else. And as my yoga practice was changing, so did my teaching. My teaching needed to change and it needed to be bold, but it was scary. And I have definitely had some missteps. Um, I've made massive mistakes, which, you know, I I, I don't hesitate to share in the mm-hmm. book, um, but I don't regret any of them because they helped me to ask the right questions and to find the people to to help me unpack those answers with more skill. Last two questions: Who
0: are your main mentors at this time? And if you had to leave a young yoga leader with one thing, one bit to either avoid or amplify, those are your last two questions.
1: Oh, who are my main? Well, in in the book I shared, um, Mona Miller was the probably the most influential person in my life, and I worked with her for about eleven years until she passed, and uh, that was she's still through her book uh, her books and her um, lectures like she's still the one who um, I call to in my meditations in my prayers and in my dreams for guidance and for support the leaders that I'm most inspired by are the social justice leaders that exist um, you know within uh, teo Drake Jacoby Ballard, Susanna Bart—I'm Bar- not going to pronounce her last name correctly. But- Barkataki, bark- Barkataki, thank you. Nikki Myers, Ardub. These are teachers in the in the communities of yoga that are committed to bridging the gap between yoga, social justice, speaking to folks on the margins. They may not have the same visibility as someone like myself, but their words, their messages, their commitment to social change and understanding the way in which it connects directly to yoga is where I get both my motivation, my inspiration, and my courage. These are often folks on the margins who have way more at risk than I do. Um, Those are the those are the folks who inspire me most because if they can speak truth to power, then how dare I not. And spiritually the teachers that I resonate with, Pandji, Rod Stryker, Sri Aurobindo and the mother will always be strong guides for me Mm -hmm. because of their own commitment to service and social change. Those are the spiritual teachers that still influence and guide. Matias Ratti, who died recently, has always been a big teacher to me, as well as Eddie Modestini, who I and Lisa Walford. These are the teachers that I turn to um, when I need either physical, emotional, spiritual um, guidance or support. Uh, Chuck Miller has always been a dear teacher to me as well, and will continue to be um, going forward. Yeah, those are, those are some of the people that I turn towards. And what I would say to a young yoga teacher do the work. Never, ever stop doing the work. There's no, yoga's never been for me about the, the rainbow. Uh, you know, it's not all bliss and harmony and, you know, infinite transcendence every single day. It's messy and bloody and it can be brutal and it can pull back the veils of illusion to reveal the sacred which is that the messy and the bloody and the incomprehensible is equally holy to that of the bliss and Our work is to be in relationship to both, to see the sacred in both, and to honor the human experience as it is, as blessed and divine, and to develop as much empathy for your own journey as possible, because it will require that to be able to stand in the presence of of another soul when they're in their shadow and hold them uh, in holiness and in love, And so do your work, find your teachers, keep evolving, keep growing. Don't be afraid to get your ass handed to you again and again and again. Keep getting up, say you're sorry often, be humble in this process and trust, trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be doing the work you're supposed to be doing and always stay open to the new teachers as they reveal themselves because they will. And only when you're available to it will you be able to say yes to opening yourself to their guidance. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you for everything, all the work, all the years. It's been so many years for me just watching and learning and being near, being far. Thank you so much from all of us.
1: Thank you. And thank you to you. Believe me, I've watched your evolution as well and the poetry of your words and your commitment to using that space to be raw and poetic and to, I've I've witnessed it firsthand in your classes, your ability to articulate some of the complexities of the spiritual practice in a way that lands not in someone's head, but in someone's heart via the body. And so I know you're gifted at it. And so thank you for, for being willing in your own practice and teaching to continually evolve because it shows and uh, people like me are paying attention. So, so good on you too. And I, I encourage you to continue. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ah, this has
0: been great. I appreciate everything. And thank you for
1: your time today. Thank Thank you so much. Oh, it was such a joy to talk to you truly. Same. Yeah. Same. Thank you.